Well, please do keep your Bibles open. Maxim, do you mind taking that uh, out of the way? We're going to spend some time in that chapter, which is uh, one of the most famous passages in the Bible, John chapter 3. Now, you hold in your hands a copy of the world's best-selling book, if you've got a Bible in front of you, the world's best-selling book. According to the Guinness Book of Records, the Bible has sold more than five billion copies. Five billion! You know, and I've got about two billion of them in my house. (laughs) It's also the most widely distributed book in translated into different languages. At least part of the Bible has been translated into more than 2,100 languages. Can you imagine? And the full Bible into something like 370 languages. So wherever you go in the world, from global megacities to remote tribal villages, the Bible is shaping people's lives. Now that means that whoever you are today, and this may be the first time you've ever been to a church, or the a thousandth time, whoever you are, in order to live as an intelligent human being on this planet, you probably ought to read the Bible just to know what it says. And if you haven't read the Bible before, you may be looking at it and thinking, well, where do I start? It's a pretty big book. Well, what about starting in the most famous sentence in the Bible? The most famous sentence in the Bible. Have a look at verse 16 again. Here it is. Here it is in Spanish. Have we got a Spanish speaker who can read this out nice and loud? Mario, read it out for us. Gracias. <laughs> Here it is again. Now, I hope this is actually John 3.16 and not a recipe for Kung Po chicken. I, I could get this off the internet. Have we got any Mandarin speakers? Where's Vivi? Is she here? Could, is, is it John 3.16? Read it out for us, nice and loud. Thank you very much. And here it is again. Now, what language is this? Malayalam. Do we have a Malayalam speaker here? Come on, give, you can't read it. Okay. He, he, told me, he told me he was a Malayalam speaker, but he did just say his first language is now English. Okay, what about this? Scottish. You know, it may be that some of, some of our Scottish friends here had a bit of trouble when uh, Steph read it out. So here it is for you. Uh, the only begotten in that I'm not even going to try it but I love that hey life for a which I think means forever John 3:16, the most famous verse in the Bible for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life now this verse is a gem it's a diamond it's a jewel In a single sentence, it actually condenses the whole message of the entire Bible into into one sentence. It's a brilliant summary of what the good book is all about, and I think we should all know John 3.16 by heart in our language of choice. Uh, It's a gem, but it's not an island. This verse is not an island. It does not stand alone. It belongs in a setting because it occurs right in the middle of a conversation. 
And like a brilliant diamond set into a gold crown, the conversation gives the setting and gives the gem its light and its luster and its beauty. And it's a conversation that happened one night nearly 2,000 years ago between two men. Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, and Nicodemus the Pharisee. Now you may be thinking, okay, this is all very interesting if you like that sort of thing, but I'm not doing uh, GCSE religious studies. So with respect, what does this really have to do with me? Does a conversation between Nicodemus the Pharisee and Jesus of Nazareth have anything to do with your life? The answer is yes, it really does. It has everything to do with your life and who you are today because of who Jesus is. Now, the first two chapters of John's Gospel, which we've spent some time in the last couple of months, we've learned who Jesus is, and we've seen an incredible picture of Jesus, a unique human being. The book starts by saying he is the Word of God. He's the Word who was with God before anything was made, before the universe was created, before the stars were flung into space, before the atoms were invented. This word, Jesus, was with God and he was God. So he's both with God and he's, he is God. He's the, described as the one and only son. So we learn that God is a unique being. He's not like us. God is three persons in one, a triune being, a trinity. And people have tried to come up with all sorts of illustrations of to, how to uh, illustrate what the Trinity is. Uh, is it like water? You know, sometimes it's ice, steam, sometimes it's water. Well, none of those things work because God is the original reality and everything else is derived from him. Jesus was with God and he was God and everything that has been made has been made through Jesus. And now this great God, God the Son, has made the journey from heaven to earth from eternity to time, he's come all the way down and become one of us. He's been joined to our humanity absolutely fully. So there was a moment in history where God the Son became as small as a full stop on the page of your Bible, because that's how big a woman's egg is in her womb. He joined himself to the life of, of humanity in that egg. He was fertilized and born as a baby and breastfed and had nappies and he grew as a human, but he was fully God the whole time. He's a completely unique person. His name is Jesus. He came all the way down for us. That's who's speaking to this guy, Nicodemus, a unique person. So when Jesus starts talking, there's somebody who's got something to say to you because he knows you. He knows your heart. He knows what's in your mind. He knows everything about you. So Jesus, as the one who came down from heaven, has got a, giving us a unique opportunity to have insider information, insider intel on the big questions of human life. And notice the way in this section that Steph read, how the, the dialogue between Jesus and Nicodemus sort of fades into the background. And by verse 16, it's almost like a monologue, and it's almost as if Jesus has turned from Nicodemus and looked at you in the eye. And now he's speaking to you because he's now speaking about things that are eternally, universally true. The eternal one, the word of God, can tell us things that only God knows. And he speaks to our hearts of the things we really need. He speaks about true love. He speaks about real life. 
He speaks about forgiveness and a clean state and a fresh, uh, fresh start. Now, are those topics things that are relevant to you in your life? True love, real life, forgiveness, mercy. Of course they are. So it's of the utmost importance today that we hear the voice of Jesus Christ coming through these words in the Bible. And if we listen to him, we will learn about three great realities, three great realities that we must grasp if we're going to live the life that we were made for. Three great realities. Firstly, you must be born again. Secondly, you, Jesus must be lifted up. And thirdly, God must really love the world. You must be born again. Jesus must be lifted up and God must really love the world. You must be born again. Verse 3. Now let me ask you, what springs to mind when you hear the expression, a born-again Christian? I suspect not all of us have got a great image that comes to mind. You may think of uh, intolerant people. You may think of fundamentalists. You may think of right-wing politics, maybe associated with the United States. You may think of religious nutters or people who are just a bit too keen to talk about God. You may think of guys with mullets who listen to Christian rock music. But whatever associations born-again Christians bring to mind, the chances are that not all of us are that excited about being born again. But that's because you don't know what it really means. What does it actually mean to be born again? Now, have a look in your Bible. Um, on, if you've got the Church Bible, page 1065, uh, on, in the English version. I'm sorry, I don't know the number in Chinese. Um, chapter 3, verse 3. Very truly I tell you, says Jesus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And then there's probably a little footnote. You see it in the Church Bible. It's got little letter A. And in the footnote there, in very small print, it says... The Greek for again also means from above. And the same word is used in verse 7. So Jesus is saying no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again or unless they are born from above, from God. So there's a double meaning here. It's a kind of play on words. Being born again is like being born a second time, but it also means being born from above, being born from God. God giving new life. Are you with me? Yes? I think so. Some, two people are with me. Great. What is the cash value of this? What it means, born again, means a new life that comes from God, a new birth in the human heart. Now, you were all given physical life by your parents. I'm pretty confident of that fact. You had nothing to do with the process. You weren't uh, consulted, you probably didn't volunteer to be born, but you are the beneficiaries of it. In the same way, Jesus says, we need to be given spiritual life by God. Without it, Jesus says, you can't see God, you can't understand God, you can't even perceive spiritual things with any degree of accuracy. Now actually, I'm going to get into this because this is quite offensive in 
the, our culture and in most times of world history. This is a radical and rather offensive claim. Jesus is saying that human beings by themselves do not have spiritual life. They just don't have it. By themselves, on our own merits, we do not stand a chance of seeing God or of experiencing his life or of properly understanding our place in the universe. Now what this means, the implications of what Jesus is saying, are that every religion and every philosophy in human history is basically a grasping in the dark. Just a grasping after the wind. It might, it might kind of grab onto a few things that are sort of true, but really there's no light there's no illumination apart from the life that God gives through Jesus. Now that also means that we've got no chance of being accepted by God, of being forgiven, welcomed, or going to heaven on our own merits. We have no chance, zero chance for any of that to happen. We must be born again, given this new life from God. So human beings... It's not that we have some kind of reasonable grasp on spiritual reality and we just need a bit of clarification on a few matters. It's much more radical than that, what he's saying. It means that unless God gives you new life, you have no grasp of spiritual reality. You're not even on the right page. Now just think about this man who came to see Jesus, Nicodemus. If ever there was a person who you would have thought had a chance of getting it right spiritually, this actually was the guy. First of all, he was Jewish. The Jewish people had been given the Old Testament. The word of God in their own language, in Hebrew, they had words from God. God made a special treaty with them, a special covenant, a promise, an arrangement, whereby he would be their God and would lead them and guide them. He gave all these special privileges to the Jewish nation, the Israelites. Not only that, but Nicodemus, it says in verse 1, was a Pharisee. So this is like the Premier League. These are the guys who really believe the Bible. <clears throat> They're very, very scrupulous to observe all the details. These are the kind of Bible bashers of their day. I mean, these, these guys are so morally upright. You know, they pay their taxes and they, they help old ladies cross the road. You know, they, these are the Pharisees. And he's also a leader. He's probably an aristocrat. He's a person of some substance. He's very well educated. Jesus says to him, you are Israel's teacher. He's a highly educated theologian. He knows his Bible back to front. He's a respected figure and authority in the community. Of all the people who would have, you would have thought, if you'd been one of the first readers, would have had some spiritual cachet, Nicodemus is, is in the A-team. And Jesus says, you're not even on the pitch. You're not even on the pitch. Look at this verbal sparring. Verse 2, Rabbi, Nicodemus says, he's speaking respectfully, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So he's trying to kind of come up alongside Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 3, very truly I tell you, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now Nicodemus is going, huh? It's a bit like, I, mean, I don't want to be disrespectful, a little bit like Yoda, you know, so he said one thing, somebody replied completely differently. So he, um, he's so, he doesn't have any idea how to respond, so he just goes really literal. He says, uh, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It's a bit sarcastic. Jesus speaks to him again. Verse 5, 
very solemnly, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. And Jesus is saying, Nicodemus, you think you, you know a fair bit about God already. You think you're coming to me on a level playing field uh, and then we're going to exchange ideas. But let me tell you, dear, dear Nicodemus, unless you're born of water and the Spirit, you're not even on the pitch. We can't even see anything about God. Now, what's this water and the Spirit? There are some different theories about this. I think the most convincing is that the water is baptism and the Spirit is God giving new life to somebody. In John's Gospel, people get baptised in water to show that they want to start again. They want to say sorry for their sins and live a new life. Baptism usually involved going out to a river or a stream or a lake where there was plenty of water and somebody pushing you under, fully immersing you and pulling you out again. It was, a, it was a physical, symbolic way of showing you wanted to change, coming out a new person, joining a new community. And Jesus is saying, yes, you do need to do that. You need to be born of water. But on its own, that sign is meaningless. You need God to give you new birth from above, by his Holy Spirit, changing your heart. You need both things. You need the physical sign and the inward reality. And let me just go over here and do a sidebar for a moment. The sidebar is, friends, if, if you are a Christian or you've become a Christian in recent days and you've not been baptised, we need to put it right. So will you come and speak to me about that and we'll, we'll organise a baptism? Back to the main text. On its own, the physical sign of water is not enough. You need God to give you new birth by his Holy Spirit changing your heart. You need the physical sign and the inward reality. Let me just give you an illustration of this. Last year I visited uh, South Korea and I went to, uh, oops, I've missed a load of slides. That was a good one. I oh, see another one, born again, missed, missed them all. Anyway, they're gone now. Last year I went to Seoul in South Korea, fantastic city, and um, our hosts gave me a lovely gift in a box and on the box was a, a yellow sticky note, a post-it note, with some handwriting on. And I unwrapped the gift, but because I'm a sentimental old fool, I kept the sticky note. I have it next to my desk. And here it is. Now, what does that say? I have no idea. I think it said my name. But it might say, the fat English guy. <laughs> For all I know, it might say, kick me in the pants. You know, I have no idea what they wrote on that sticky note. Ensign, what does it say? It says my name. Oh, that's a relief. <laughs> but you see, I have no way of working this. I have no way. I mean, even if you could sort of find Google Translate, how are you going to type that in? <laughs> You've got no way of working out unless someone from there tells me. Right? I need Ensign in my life. <laughs> now, you see our problem. We cannot enter the kingdom of God. We can't even see it by nature. We need someone from there to come and tell us. And that's what Jesus does. Verse 12, he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven Except the one who came from heaven, that's Jesus, the Son of Man. And now this passage that we have here, it tells us uh, what we're like 
using various terms. And let me, let me just say, none of these are compliments, right? There are no compliments for you in John 3. The way that God talks about our position by nature. But if you had cancer and your doctor found out and you went to see your doctor, you would not want him to tell you some compliments about your hair or your choice of handbag. You would want the truth. What's wrong with me and what can I do about it? And so here is the truth about you and me by nature. Verse 16, we are perishing. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish. So by our nature, we're not heading for life eternally. We're heading for destruction. And the language in the Bible is really grim. The idea of heading for an eternal destruction, cut off from the life of God, being destroyed, perishing forever. That's the first description. Secondly, we are condemned. Verse 18, whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So by our nature, who we are as people, we're not in the right with God, we're not even neutral, we're actually condemned. We have a sentence of condemnation hanging over our heads. We have a sentence of guilty entered against us by our nature. Why is that? Because we're evil. Verse 19 This is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. It's very striking, this Bible language, that we're actually evildoers. We don't tend to think of ourselves as evil. We have a category of evil that's over there, and usually we're not in it. (laughs) We all have some people we think of as evil, right? Pedophiles, child molesters, Corporate bankers who rip off people's pension funds. Mass murderers. They're all evil, right? But I'm over here on the non-evil side. Usually, that's how we think of ourselves. The Bible's designation of you and me is that we're actually evil. And that even our good deeds are evil. Because we do them in a way to make ourselves look good. Our motives are always about self-glorification, not glorifying God. Even our good deeds are damnable. It's grim. Verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. I mean, this is just the end of it. You know, you don't even want to come into the light because you're afraid that your shameful, evil, whatever your sin is, will be exposed. Now this is, I said it wasn't a set of compliments, but it is the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition. We're lost, utterly lost. We're in spiritual darkness. We love it there because we can cover up our private evil, whatever form that takes, and we hate the light when it comes to us. Our hearts are actually allergic to God. Our hearts are allergic to God. And I wonder how you feel as I say these things, friends. Are you getting annoyed? It may be that you had a pretty good opinion of yourself when you came in here this morning and the words of Jesus are offensive to you. If you are in that position, it may be that God is already speaking to you. He's already putting his hand on your shoulder through his word. He's starting to challenge you 
to confront you with how he sees you so that he can draw you to himself. God actually sees you as a hateful sinner, not a decent person, hateful. But he wants to draw you to himself. That's what this, why we've got this text. So because you and I were hateful sinners, we need to be born again. You must be born again, Jesus says. You need new birth. You need new life, spiritual life, which you can only get from God. So the first great reality, you must be born again. So let me ask, have you been born again? Have you been born again? I'm not asking if you believe in God. The devil believes in God. He's not born again. I'm not asking if you believe actually in the Bible. Uh, Some of us here grew up getting the Bible with our mother's milk. You probably know it better than I do. I'm not asking if you believe the Bible. I think the devil believes the Bible as well. You can believe all of those things and be spiritually dead. I mean, have you been born again? Has God created new life inside you, in your soul? Has the great change occurred? Now, it might have occurred very, very slowly. It may have been when you were so young you can't remember. Very, very gradual. That's what my mum's story is. She can never remember when she became a Christian. It used to bug her. But she was born again very young. My dad, on the other hand, can remember the time and the place and the date. He went on a boys' brigade camp Saturday night. He gave his life to Jesus. He went home on the bus a different boy. Different people come in different ways. But the question again, have you been born again? Has the great change occurred? Is there evidence of new life springing up inside you? Do you want to pray? Do you want to stop sinning and turn away from those things? Do you love God's people? Do you love God? Are you excited about seeing God? Do you read the Bible? Does it come alive for you? Are you clinging on to some of his promises? Which ones? Have you been born again? It's very simple. Second big reality is Jesus must be lifted up. Jesus must be lifted up. And given what we've just been saying about God's diagnosis of you and me by nature, this is just wonderful. It's sweet. It is a beautiful, awesome, mind-blowing thing that Jesus must be lifted up. Now just read with me again and, and watch what looks like a strange gear change, like a change of subject. Read with me again, verse 13 to 15, and see if you can spot what looks like a change of subject. Verse 13, where is it? Um, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. What? (laughs) Did you spot the change of subject? At least it looks like one. Jesus is talking about himself coming from heaven as the Son of Man, and then he suddenly talks about Moses lifting up a snake in the wilderness hundreds of years before. What? In the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21, which is on page 158, you could look at that later, the Israelite people are traveling in the wilderness. They're on their way to the promised land, but they're not there yet. And they're growing impatient. And as they were, they were accustomed to do, they were murmuring and grumbling about the food and about the weather and about Moses and about... It was, life was actually much better in Egypt. You know, we used to have Egyptian barbecue. And God got fed up with them, and he sends venomous snakes among the people who bite them, and many of the people died. 
So they come and they say to Moses, we've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and we've sinned when we spoke against you. Pray that God will take the snakes away from us. So Moses starts praying for them. And God then speaks to Moses directly and he gives him a seemingly bizarre instruction. This does not come from Ikea. You don't get the flat pack, you know, drawings with this. Make a snake and a pole and put the snake up on the pole. And then anyone who has been bitten can go and look at this bronze snake and they will live. I was thinking, that's a pretty bizarre thing to do, right? The problem's the snakes. Why are we making a bronze snake? Anyway, he does it. And it, somehow through God's power, whoever has been bitten and is suffering from the you know, first effects of poison goes and looks at this, just looks at this bronze snake and they're cured, healed and they live. Now this is a curious story, isn't it? It's really a one-off in the Old Testament. This thought thing doesn't happen all the time. But it's a very powerful image. The image of this snake on a pole. In fact, it's been used in medical uh, situations all around the world. This is actually the symbol of the British Medical Emergency Services. You can see this on things like ambulances. It's a snake on a pole. Well, now you know where it comes from. Why does Jesus apparently change the subject? Because he's just told us that we are lost, condemned, perishing. Like those people bitten by the venomous snakes. And now he's telling us how to find life. Right? He just told us what we were like. Now he's showing us how to find life. Is This is how you get to be born again. This is how you get to be healed. Not by looking at a snake on a pole, but by looking at a man on a cross. You see, God's way of dealing with our evil, our wickedness, with all our hateful sin, is to provide a way out. In Jesus Christ, on the cross, God takes the condemnation that was due to us and he directs it, he funnels it into that cross. Jesus takes the hit for you and me. On the cross, the one who, the Bible says, he, he didn't even know sin. Jesus never sinned. He was totally spotless and pure. He became sin for us. God heaped all of my sins, which are beyond my ability to count, infinite upon infinite, and he heaped them on Jesus Christ, who gave himself for me. And he did it for a multitude of people that no one can even number. People from every conceivable background uh, estimates nowadays of the global population of Christians run at about 2 billion. Now, only God knows the true number. But you know that the center of, of gravity of, of the, where the number of Christians are is moving south and east all the time. Millions of people coming to know Jesus Christ in Africa, China, Latin America, different parts of the world. The kingdom of God is on the move. Jesus took all their sins. He bore them on the cross, and so he offers you the chance of a fresh start, a new day, a new, more, more even than just a new day, a new you, a new life, born again, a new, a new birth. So do you want that? Not by looking at a snake on a pole, but by looking at the one who was lifted up on the cross. So what do you have to do to... to uh, be rescued to be saved. You just have to look. 
to Jesus on the cross. Now, what does that mean? Stop relying on your own goodness. Stop relying on your own efforts and your own abilities. Admit you've got no goodness of your own. Come to him in faith. A, B, C. Admit, believe, come. Now, here's how it it looked in the words of one famous Essex boy. Charles Spurgeon was a young man living in Essex in the mid-19th century. And this is his story in his his own words. I'm not going to attempt the Essex accent in case anyone here gets offended. But his story is just brilliant. I'll read it to you. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning. While I was going to a certain place of worship, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist church. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists before, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor, went up into the pulpit to preach. They haven't got a preacher. This guy just gets up. Now, it is well that preachers be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason he had little else to say. Here's his text, Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words correctly. But that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text. Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. And this is how the preacher began. This is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now, looking don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in broad Essex, many of you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some say, look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some of you saying, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. And then the good man starts to preach a bit. And he says, look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me. I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me. I'm dead and buried. Look unto me. I rise again. Look unto me. I ascend to heaven. Look unto me. I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner. Look unto me. Look unto me. And when he'd managed to spin out about 10 minutes or so, he'd run out of steam. And so he looks at this young guy, Charles Spurgeon, who's sitting there under the gallery. And because there's so few people there, he he knew he's a stranger. So he looked right at him. And he said, young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did. 
but I'd not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life, miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted, as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. All at once, Spurgeon says, I knew the way of salvation. I don't know what else he said. I didn't take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. I'd been waiting to do 50 things. But when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ, you will be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered, and now I can say, ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, redeeming love has been my theme, and shall be till I die. That happy day when I found the Saviour and learned to cling to his dear feet was a day never to be forgotten by me. I listened to the word of God, and that precious text led me to the cross of Christ. Between half past ten, when I entered that chapel, and half past twelve, when I was back again at home, what a change had taken place in me. Simply by looking to Jesus, I'd been delivered from despair, and I was brought into such a joyous state of mind that when they saw me at home, they said, something wonderful has happened to you. And I was eager to tell them all about it. Now do you see this logic of the snake on the pole? It's a logic of simple trust in something external from yourself. I don't know how it works. There's a snake on a pole over there. I've got to look at it. And somehow God is going to use that to work a change in me. That's what happens. Jesus uses this image very powerfully to say, you look to him on the cross, something that happened in real history 2,000 years ago, a real man, flesh and blood, died on a cross. You look to that and it counts for you now. It changes something in you now because of God's power giving you new birth. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the door of heaven and let us in. So let me ask you, friends, what are you looking to in your life at the moment? What are you trusting to give you life? What are you trusting to give you meaning and purpose? What are you, where are you looking for joy and peace? You must be born again. And the second great reality is that Jesus must be lifted up. You get to be born again by trusting his death on the cross was for you. And I've never done this before, but I've run out of time. So you have to wait for the third great reality another time, that God must be love. He so loved the world that he gave his very best, his one and only son. He gave himself to death on a cross. That whoever believes in him, looks to him, shall not perish, but have eternal life, new birth. So you must trust Christ. You must believe the gospel, whoever you are. I'm just finished with a few thoughts 
for Christians here and for those of you who, who are not Christians, maybe you're looking into the faith or maybe you've realized today for the first time that you're actually not born again. This is the time to change. So Christians, let me just ask you, is this how you think of yourself? Do you think of yourself as someone who is a new creation, a new person who's been given new birth? How do you think of yourself? Let me just drill into it a bit more. When you sin, do you think, ah, this is the real me? And I need to try really, really hard not to be like the real me. I would need to try and be the Christian godly version of me. Do you see what's wrong with that? You're thinking of yourself as the old person trying to somehow put on the new, like a set of clothes. Whereas this says you can be born again. The new you is the real you. Sinning is putting on the old way. That's what you've got to get rid of. But the real you is the you that's been born again in Jesus. That's who you are now, Christian. You are a new kind of person, a person who will live forever. Do you think of yourself like that, as a new creation? And how much do you think God loves you? That's my other thought for you. How much do you think God loves you? Do do you ever doubt that God really loves you? you? Do you ever think God might give up on you or have enough of you? Just look at the cross. There's no end to what he'll do for you. His love is relentless and unstoppable, never ending, never ceasing. Fountain of love keeps pouring out. So are you experiencing the new life of God and walking in it and trying to live in it day by day or stumbling along in the old way of life, occasionally going to church? It's two different ways of life. You must be born again. Jesus must be lifted up. Let's live that way. Non-Christians, some of you here may be on the brink. You've been listening to sermons and you've been looking into the Bible and going to discussion groups and Bible studies and whatever, maybe for years, maybe for months. You you know, you probably know enough now and something's holding you back or you're just at the point where you need to trust Jesus, right? And you kind of know it. It's as if you've got to cross over. You've got to cross over to that side and, and, and... let me just ask you, make the, make the leap. I urge you, make the transition. Come to Jesus, like that young boy did in Essex. It's time to trust him. And maybe some, you've spent all your life going to church and knowing about the Bible, and it's never really been real. You've never really been born again. You've realized today that you're just going through the motions. You know what? Don't despair. All you have to do is the same as the other person. Look to Jesus. And some of you here, maybe this is the first time you've been in church, and maybe it's been a bit intense. I can understand that. I'm not normally this intense. But you've seen that you need to start a journey. You know, you've heard a lot today, your head's spinning. We had a woman here recently who she was so overwhelmed during the songs, she had to go outside for a few minutes. You've encountered living Christianity today. Praise God. Let me ask you, start the journey with us. Come along. We're fairly normal. But don't let the moment pass you by. Look to Jesus. And I'm going to pray now. And also to make an offer that if there's, any, if there's one person who 
knows that today's the day they need to cross over. Will you pray now? Will you come and speak to me about it afterwards? I'd love to talk with you and pray more. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, what a sweet message this is. You so loved the world, the lost, perishing, condemned, wicked world, that you gave your only son. You gave him even up to death. And now anyone who believes in him, who looks to him, and just leans their weight on him and relies on him, shall not perish but have eternal life. What a promise. We want love, we want life, we want a fresh start. You have offered all of them to us in this one verse. So please, gracious God, send your spirit now to us here and especially to those who need to repent and turn to you and trust you and those who are slidden away and need to come back. Please do a work in us now. Give us that new birth which only you can give for the glory of Jesus, your Son, our Saviour. Amen.